you have a Bible this morning, uh, turn with me to the book of Philippians. Let's go to chapter 1. We want to begin our study in verse 8 and then take it to verse 18. But as we see the title of the teaching here, Victory Over Suffering. Again, the church is not exempt. We will go through sufferings, some more than others, and some not just the physical sufferings, but there's emotional suffering. There's suffering of anxieties. There's suffering of divorce. I, I, I hurt and I pain when I see divorce in the church, but uh, to neglect it and say it doesn't happen, it does happen. Some of you have experienced that, and our hearts go out. And yet we see the physical pain. Somebody up in the hospital. We visit them over and over. And eventually they will succumb uh, to their disease, to their infirmity. And they'll go home to be with the Lord. And we praise God for that. But it's not without trial. It's not without hardship and pain. Now if you have a, a marker right there in your Bible, I want you to just mark that. But go with me to Romans chapter 8. I want to just draw something that Paul wrote of. Now I'm reminded when Paul comes to saving grace in the book of Acts in chapter 9, there in the Damascus Highway, he eventually goes to this man's house. His name is Ananias. And there he was to care for Paul. He was to lay hands upon Paul to pray for him. And the Lord told him, this man, speaking of Saul of Tarsus, that would become Paul the Apostle, he will suffer great pain for me. A lot of trials for Paul. And so he speaks of this. In Romans chapter 8, verse 12, we have this position of being a son, being a daughter in Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, part of our life is also suffering. So look at verse 12 with me. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to, sin, to the sinful nature, but to live, to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. It's a spiritual death. But if by the Spirit you put, on, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And so that there is speaking of coming to that, that place of the born-again experience. You will live. That still doesn't mean, you know, that you're not going to go through hardship. You're not going to go through turmoil, trials, tribulations, and even physical pain. But you come to experience a saving grace. Look at verse 14. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are called sons of God. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're born again of the Holy Spirit, you're a son of God, you're a daughter of God. You've come to that relationship. But notice as he goes on in verse 15, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again uh, to fear. Fear is not of God. But you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now, the translation here of Abba, Father, it's written in the Aramaic. It's a very intimate word. Paul came to this conclusion now. He was not just God. And sometimes we have that tendency. And just to look, well, you're God. And that's true. But the word Abba, Father, is very dear to the heart. 
And you have the same position as Paul. As Paul cried, Abba, Father. The translation is saying, Father, Father, intimately. Or a better translation is even the, using the word Daddy. That's what we would understand. And that intimacy, Daddy, Daddy. And so Paul knew his relationship now. You should know that relationship now. And so then he says in verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I like what one old preacher said years ago. You know because you know because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you. You're a son of God. You're a child of God. You're a daughter of God. You've been set free. Remember the years that we feared speaking to God? Because if he knew my sin, then he's going to hit me, right? But now I come into this relationship. As Paul says, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy, let me come to you now in all intimacy. Let me empty of myself and, and come humbly before you. And I recognize now, I know I'm a Christian. You should know you're a Christian. And if you're not sure that you're not a Christian yet, then I would have to say that the Holy Spirit has not revealed that to you. And you need to come to saving grace. Because he will. He will show you that you are a Christian. And so then Paul ties it all up. And this is what we're speaking about, the suffering. Look at verse 17. Now, if we are children of God, then we are heirs and heirs of God and co-heirs, he says, with Christ Jesus. And here's the caption. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Be careful with those that tell you you're not healed. Uh, there's lack of faith. Man, some of the best Christians I've seen, some of the solid Christians I've seen, some of the more most righteous Christians, they're going to go through suffering. Here's Paul the Apostle, good example. We are not exempt, church. And so Paul's writing uh, to the church at Philippi. He's in a prison, which we call a house arrest there in Rome. And the reason it's still considered a prison, he was shackled to uh, these guards. Paul couldn't freely live, leave, that is. Now, people came to him. People came, Paul witnessed, Paul prayed, Paul, you know, laid hands on them. And then he was penning this letter, not only to the church at Philippi, but he also is going to write one to the church at Colossae. He already wrote one uh, to the church at Ephesus, and then eventually he'll write this personal letter to Philemon. Those are the four prison epistles. It took God to slow down Paul, I believe. Because I wonder, if Paul would have never been arrested, would we have this precious letter to the Philippians? Would we have the other letters? Now, we know that God could have done it any way he wanted to do. But he says, Paul, it's time for you to take a vacation. He sends him to prison. And Paul's going to speak about that. There were those that took advantage of his incarceration. And they were preaching the gospel in pretense, and we'll see that. But notice as Paul is going to still speak about the love towards the Philippians. And if you were here last week, he had such a compassion. He had such a heart for the Philippian church. And yet he's in prison. Uh, listen to verse 8 now, uh, Philippians chapter 1. For God is my witness, God is my testimony. How greatly I long for you. 
all with uh, affection of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's heart now. My eyewitness, he's saying. Suffering in a Roman prison, a house arrest for, we know in the book of Acts it says for two years. Paul had this freedom there, even in incarceration, to preach and to teach and to write, to counsel. And then he says, but I'm still in prison. And the love that he had, the compassion that he had. Now look at some words here. The word affection. For us as we look at compassion, a longing for, a caring for. I miss you so much, etc. But the Greek word here, if you have a King James, they use the word bowels. Now we're not accustomed to that. I love you from the depths of my bowel area. But for the Greek, it was a very intimate way to say this. I mean, they loved you down deep inside. This is Paul. Now, the Greek word that they use, I can't even pronounce it, for bowels, and yet it was the same, we drew our English word, the spleen. So Paul is saying, my love for you in my inward parts, my inward affections, the tender mercies that I have for you, and it even means to have pity for you, to have sympathy for you. And this is Paul's concern for the Philippians, and not only the Philippians, but for other churches. We know that Paul uh, ministered to many, many churches. And here we are this morning receiving uh, from the Philippian uh, reading. And so Paul's compassion. But notice he uses another term, I long for you. In the Greek word it says, I crave, I yearn, I have passion for you, the church at Philippi. And so again, this just speaks of Paul's heart. And we describe it further in the next verse. He prayed for them. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment. Here is a man incarcerated and his concern for prayer. His concern for prayer for the church. Now I know Paul would have better been off I want to be there at Philippi. And sometimes you fall into the same trap. You want to be with your loved one. And maybe you can't. Maybe you're separated, as my wife and I are, uh, from our Southern California family. It's 850 miles. Cut it either way you drive it. And sometimes when things are going on, you want to be there hands on. Well, if I was there, my brother-in-law wouldn't do this or my sister-in-law wouldn't do this. And the best you can do, listen, the best you can do is pray. And sometimes we, we don't see the effect of prayer because we want hands-on. Oh, I tell you what. You can change the course of life in prayer. If you get down to the nitty-gritty and you pray and you seek God. I mean, I can't go to California every time I want to. It's very expensive, very time-consuming. And so we pray. I think about the missionaries. We have missionaries that we uh, support and missionaries that we pray for. And from time to time, they'll send an email. We can't go, but we can pray for them. And so this is Paul's heart here. Paul always went to the heart of a matter, as we're reading verse 9. And how did he do this? But he went to the heart of the matter in prayer. Paul prayed. One commentary said this, for their causes, not for their symptoms... 
Here was a cause he prayed for them. That their love for God, for others, would overflow. They would keep growing in the knowledge and understanding of Christ and his gospel. Paul's heart here. Now mark this verse down. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says this simple phrase at the conclusion of the first letter. Pray without ceasing. Now, for years, I looked at that translation, pray without ceasing, you know, 24-7. Is that what he's saying? Paul's saying having a continued consciousness of prayer. Lord, I can't be in Southern California, but I can pray. Paul says, Lord, I can't be at Philippi right now. I'm stuck in this Roman prison. Lord, I pray. And so likewise for yourself. Maybe we can't be at that situation, but I can pray. And Paul's prayer that they would have this type of prayer because he kept this type of prayer in his own heart. Prayer is so important, church. Prayer is so essential. We have such power in prayer. And sometimes we we don't see it. We neglect it. Look at verse 10. That you may approve, and this is his prayer for them, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Jesus Christ. Last week in our sermon, he said uh, that who has begun a good work in you, he's going to finish it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And now he says, approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, and when he, the day Christ comes for us. So here's Paul's prayer in verse 10 for the Philippians, that they would have discernment, listen, To spend their time, listen, here's a beautiful translation, on the excellent things of God. And I think sometimes we can get caught up in the trials and tribulation. And yes, pray for those. But he's saying the excellent things of God. The excellent way of Christ and the excellent way of the gospel of truth. Notice that he says approve these things. Discern them. Examine them. Test them. Prove them. Now, the best way to understand the most excellent way. There is a passage of Scripture. I'm going to read it to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 30, it's the conclusion of the chapter. It's what sets up what Paul's going to proclaim in 1 Corinthians 13, and that is called the love chapter. But listen to the conclusion. He says in verse 31, But earnestly desire the best gifts, And yet I show you a more excellent way. Desire the best gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, he spoke about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 14, again, he speaks about more gifts of the Holy Spirit. But a lot of people neglect chapter 13. It's right in the middle. How to operate in these gifts. The most excellent way is agape. It's love. Paul had to learn this love. Paul was a tyrant. Paul was like a raging bull, the Greek structure says. He had letters in hand. He was going to Damascus. He was going to bring back Christians, and he was going to put them in jail. He was going to put them sentence, and some he would consent to their death. He did that with Stephen. He consented to Stephen's death. But something happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. The Holy Spirit got a hold of him and transformed him and changed him. And all of a sudden, Paul had this love, this agape love, 
We know that Paul uh, went to Arabia and there for three years the Holy Spirit taught him. And Jesus, I believe, taught him. Paul was a changed man. They couldn't believe it of Paul because he was a tyrant. He was mean. In fact, if you remember the story in Acts chapter 9, Ananias doesn't want to pray for him. But Paul had scales in his eyes, and Ananias says, Lord, and I'm paraphrasing this, if the scales fall off, he's going to see me, and then he's going to capture me. I'm the first one. He feared Saul of Tarsus. But Paul the apostle was a changed man. Transformed, listen, by the most excellent way, the way of agape. That's who changed Paul. That's who changed you. And if God hasn't changed you, you haven't tapped in to agape love. Now, most of you have heard my testimony, but you didn't know how I was in Southern California. I come here basically a changed man. But I had a background, and it wasn't good. There was no love. There was no compassion. There was no grace. You want to know how God showed me? He puts me in jail, prison, and street ministry. I detested those people. I say, they got in trouble, not me. And God puts me in there to minister to them. Only through God's love. Look at verse 11. He says, being filled now, you've got this agape love, this excellent way. Being filled with the fruit of righteousness, that's your salvation, basically, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. But notice that he says, being filled. The Greek structure there is continually being filled with the fruit of righteousness. Your salvation is intact. It continues through your lifetime. You're saved when you get to heaven or else you wouldn't get in there. But I love this. It's a continued thing. And so Paul is saying here, continually being filled with the spirit or the fruit of righteousness. It's the salvation. It's now the right living with God. Those good things that are produced in your life and in my life and Paul's life through Jesus Christ. It's the fruit of the spirit. It's the spirit of righteousness. You see, God gives us his spirit. And he changes you. He transforms you. Now, let me give you this next portion. It's not here in the text, but then he gives us the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, 23, the fruit of the Spirit begins with love. This is this more excellent way, this agape, this love. And then he says, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'll tell you what, God placed self-control in my heart. I know some of you, God has placed self-control in your heart. Just what we read of Saul of Tarsus, God definitely placed self-control. But it starts with agape love. Oh, Lord, that I'm just a good person. Lord, did I just treat people correctly? That's all great, but it better start with God changing you and placing his love in you. That's what he did to this Saul of Tarsus. And now Paul's conveying this, listen, to the church at Philippi. Now he's going to begin to speak about his personal suffering. And we just get a glimpse here. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul speaks about his trials and tribulations. A man that went through so much. He was beaten by his own countrymen, left for dead. 
lowered in a basket out of one city. He was stoned by, you know, plummeted with rocks. He was robbed. He was shipwrecked. I like that one rendition. It says he was shipwrecked and he was in the water for a span of 24 hours. Imagine bobbing and weaving in the, like a top. This was Saul of Tarsus. And remember when he finally gets to Malta, he's gathering sticks to start a fire and he sticks his hand in and to get some, some kind of kindling and this snake indigenous to the area latches onto him. And then Paul shakes it off. And the people were blown away from Malta because they knew that little viper. Paul should have been dead. Paul should have been dead. But the love of God, the trials this man went through. Notice verse 12, he goes on. He says, but I want you to know, he's talking to the church at Philippi, brothers and sisters, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out to the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. And even for us this morning, we profit from the book of, uh, to the Philippians. Trials in the ministry for Paul were very common. Did he get used to them? I don't think so. They were hurtful. They were painful, just as they are for us. Paul had some very personal trials, some very physical trials. And so here Paul says that all of my suffering. All my trials, all my hardship, they served a purpose in God's plan to spread the gospel to the Philippians and to other churches. Paul ministered in Asia, in Asia Minor. He ministered in Greece. He ministered in Rome. And the list goes on. Remember, Paul wanted to go to Spain. Many believe that he did go to Spain. We're not sure. He wanted to go to Spain. I know for sure the gospel got to Spain. And sometimes Paul was warned. Man, if you go to this place, you're going to be uh, taken captive. You're going to be bound. He received a personal prophecy. Paul still would go. <laughs> when Barnabas was ministering to Paul, with Paul, that is, and they were going from city to city. And it's not in the scriptures, but I love it. In the movie, Paul the Apostle, they inserted it. Because... <laughs> Barnabas says, Paul, we can't go to that city. They're going to throw stones at us. He goes, I'm going. You can go with me or you can stay. And Barnabas, it's a catch line. Let us go. And let us pray that the stones are softer in this city. I go, how can a stone be softer? Unless a southpaw is going to throw at you, right? No. But this was Paul's heart. It didn't faze him. Even though he knew the stones were coming, even though he knew that the hardship was coming, they were going to run him out of cities most of the time, he still went. I would say, you know what, Paul? I'm not going. <laughs> you go with him, Barnabas. I'm not going. But this was the heart of the man. So Paul, many personal trials. What about us this morning? I want you to think. Here's Paul in prison. Could I handle that? Could you handle that? For preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, I get emails every week. And I read about brothers and sisters in Christ. Pastors just like me. For preaching the gospel that I'm doing right here this morning. They're incarcerated. 
I cringe when I read about uh, the Chinese pastors that have been in prison already for six years, eight years, ten years, and then they finally get released. He goes home with his wife and his kids and has dinner, has a good night's rest, and the next day he's preaching. I go, you're crazy. Guess what they did? Incarcerate him again. What about his poor wife? What about his kids? Okay, Dad, see you in another 10 years. I'll be 25 then, Dad. Didn't phase these men. And so the gospel. And so Paul says here, here's a good question for us this morning. What are you going through? Paul was in prison for, four, or for two, two years there in Rome. We're told that he had an infirmity. Uh, he said it was like a pain in the neck. But we know that it was this eye affection, infection that he had, basically. We know that him and Silas were preaching the gospel one time, and their backs were open for preaching, and then they were placed in stocks and, and put in the dungeon, and they're singing praises unto God at midnight. And Paul tells Silas, these are but light afflictions. Hmm. What are you going through? What am I going through? What's the purpose? Is God using my trials as he used Paul's trials? Is God using my hardships as he used Paul's hardships? My suffering, my pain, your pain, your suffering. Paul says here, for his glory, for God's glory, these things happen. In the book of James in chapter 1, count it all joy as you fall into various trials. Because God's building uh, patience. You look at that word patience in the Greek. He's building strength. He's building stamina. He's building endurance. And then I like this. He's building character. And I respond, I have enough character. Leave me alone. And yet God's always chipping away. Listen, the old man and the old woman. We have been studying on Wednesday nights the Old Testament. Went through the book of Joshua. And now we're going through the book of Judges, and it's beautiful as we go through the history of Israel, constantly crying out to God, and then God would set them free, and then take away their idol worship, their idolatry, and then they would serve God sometimes 20, 40, even one point there were 80 years they were in the rest of God. Then all of a sudden they go back to idolatry. And then God would bring another uh, trial, another tribulation their way. Look at the history of Israel. I mean, God used the Egyptians to get a hold of them. He used the Assyrians to get a hold of them. He, he used the Babylonians. He used the Greeks. He used the Romans. These are, uh, Israel's the apple of God's eye. And God would use heathen nations to get a hold of their attention. Now, as we've been studying the Old Testament, I keep bringing up this verse on Wednesday night. I want you to mark this down if you're taking notes. Go home tonight. We're just going to study one verse, but uh, study 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. Speaks of Old Testament examples, but let me just read verse 6 to you. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Paul says, Now these things became our examples. The trials, the tribulations of the Old Testament saints. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And so I respond, listen, I don't want nothing to do with idolatry. 
And yet that was the children of Israel. And so we learn from their mistakes. Paul says, uh, learn from their uh, examples. I should learn from my own examples, my own mistakes. Here lies our victory and suffering. Listen, because we trust God. In the midst of my trials, in the midst of my pain, I cry out to God for some of the hurts in our fellowship here. We've, turned, we've learned to just fall in love with Belinda because of her pain. And she's a trooper. She's not always able to come to church because she can't even get out of bed some mornings. You know what I mean? And yet when she does come in, she has this smile. And I just go, Lord, why is she going through that? This is her third bout with cancer. And yet I see others that are healthy. And we praise God. I don't wish cancer on anybody. But Paul went through his trials. Look, look at verse 13 now. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard. Now, this is important. And to all the rest uh, that my chains are in Christ. Paul's speaking about his incarceration now. It's a hardship. It's a trial. It's suffering. And it says here that there were palace guards guarding this man. Now, you might say, well, Paul was in, you know, house arrest. Well, it still was prison. I mean, we love our homes and such or wherever you might be living, uh, but you want to go outside once in a while. I don't think you'd like to be stuck there for two years. And so listen to Paul's heart here. Paul says everyone here at the Roman prison, the house arrest, including, listen, the soldiers in the palace guard, knowing that I am in chains because of Christ. Paul told them that. He would testify of that. Paul was a witness for Jesus Christ. Listen, in his trials, his hardship, his suffering, his pain. And when I hurt, I want to complain. That's our nature. When I have hardship, I want to complain. That's our nature. My first response is not prayer for others. My first response, hey, Lord, do you see what's happening to me, Bob? Come on, Lord. This isn't fair. Paul was a witness. This is why James says, count it all joy when you fall into trials and tribulations because it builds patience. Paul's trials and sufferings affected, listen, two groups. Number one, it affected the church. Hey, where's Paul, man? I don't know, but he keeps pumping letters out and epistles out from Rome in prison. Have you read Galatians? Have you, you know, have you read Ephesians, that is? Have you read Philippians? And eventually he sends Colossians. Then he sends Philemon. Hey, have you read those epistles? Paul's doing that from prison. And so it affected the church. Secondly, as we read here in verse 13, it affected the Roman uh, praetorium guard. This is the palace guard. These were the top of the line because they worked in the palace of Rome. Now, I look at this text, and I knew that the praetorium guard was guarding Paul, how much they feared this man. Because these were the elite forces, if you may. And at the same time, how much they respected this man. But this was God's way of witnessing in the high places of Rome because at the time, listen, Rome was everything. Rome was the epitome of all of the world. And yet God's witness was there. 
I love that. Again, Isaiah writes to us, listen, God's word never returns void. God's word is always a witness in the midst of trials. Now, I'll draw some more. Look at verse 14. And most of the brethren, Paul says, that are in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, again, the imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, when we see somebody that's down and out, somebody that's hurting, somebody that's probably near death, and you see the witness of Christ in and through them, you say, man, if they can share the love of Christ to guards, that's what Paul was doing, and others that were coming for personal counsel, personal teachings, man, if Paul can do this, I can do it. I can share God's love. Paul is saying here in verse 14, because of my change, my imprisonment, many of the Christians here have gained confidence. The word is assurance, trust, faith, and have become more bold in telling others about Christ. You see, it's an, it affects you. It grows on you. When somebody else is afflicted and they're going through pain and then you see them witnessing for Christ, standing up for the gospels of Jesus Christ. Now the results of suffering were for, of Jesus. Paul, he saw what Christ went through. And if Jesus could go through that, so can I. Now is Paul any different than us? No. But he was called. He was ordained. If you look at church history especially the first 300 years, church history, the oppression of Rome, there was many, many of the church that died. Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us a beautiful testimony of those that died for Christ. Then you look at Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the faith chapter, the hall of faith, the trials, the tribulations that our Christian brothers and sisters of old, the Old Testament, the examples to us. And then we can so easily say, well, that was Paul the Apostle, that was Peter, James, John, all these guys that died of martyrdom, suffered greatly for Christ. Oh, in the first 300 years of the church, many, many died. Well, that was them. But what about us today? As I was kind of looking at this, I, uh, I remember a sweet woman and some of you know her name, Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny Erickson Tata only has the function of her, of her head and her neck. Everything else is paralyzed. Back in 1967, I, I, I was appalled by it. I didn't even know it was that long. I, I assumed about 25 years ago, no. In 1967, she dove into the shallow portion of the pool and she broke her neck. She has been a solid Christian for the last 40 years. She has a tremendous ministry. I can only imagine how many people have come to know Christ because of this woman. She paints, she has to put, you know, a brush in her mouth and hold it. She writes, she has to put, you know, a, a writing apparatus in. She doesn't have movement of her hands. She got married to this man named Tata, and he takes care of her every day. Many that have come. And you look at her, she's an evangelist. 
But one day, the Bible says that she will put on a new body. You go, 40 years. I think it's amazing that she's lived this long. God's not finished with her. And there's times when she has engagements and she's all scheduled to be there, but she can't go because of the severe pain that she's in. And yet for the gospel of Jesus Christ, this was Paul. This was so many others, church. This is why Paul, uh, and we're looking at our text this morning, victory over suffering. You see, because we only suffer, in a sense, for a season. Even 40 years, it's for a season. We look at it in time. God doesn't have time. When you get to heaven, he's not going to have a Timex. That's beautiful when you look at it. Now, let's come to the conclusion. Verses 15 through 18. Paul reminds them now, not only the suffering and the pain that he went through, not only the love and the compassion that he still had for them, but while he was incarcerated, there were those that were preaching the gospel in pretense. Those that were taking advantage. Now, we know very well, if you study uh, the Judaizers, that was one of the groups. They were always trying to undermine Paul's teachings. But now taking more advantage of Paul because he's in prison. He's in house arrest. They know that he can't come out. So two groups that attacked Paul. Number one, uh, the Judaizers. that uh, Basically, uh, they believed that Jesus was Messiah, but you had to continue with the law. Circumcision was their cup of tea. The second group was called the Gnostics. Gnosticism was very popular in the early church. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah and such, but when he resurrected, he did not have a body. He was a phantom. And wherever he walked, he left no footprints. Yet the Bible says that Jesus ate honeycomb and he ate fish. He broke bread. He was a 40-day post-resurrection before his ascension into heaven. But they're always going to have those type of critics. And so some preached and some taught with pure motives, but others for personal gain. In the time of Paul and still today. Now, before we get into this, I want you to put on your thinking caps. And please don't misunderstand me. Not everybody on television, not everybody on radio but you need to check their doctrines. Make sure the televangelist is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not about building his kingdom, but it's about building the kingdom of God. Make sure uh, the radio preachers, the TV preachers, that their motives are pure. And it's hard, church, because when they get a following, there's a lot of money involved. But there's checks and balances out there. I'll tell you what, you look at the testimony of Billy Graham. You know that millions of dollars have gone through that ministry, but he has checks and balances. They have never found error in the finances of that ministry. Why? Because he's a man of integrity. It's important to see that. Now, some of these that Paul's going to mention, they came and preaching their own gospel. Paul had this conclusion, and I want you to mark down this verse. In Acts chapter 20, verse 27, his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. Paul had spent three weeks with them. And I take pride in this particular verse because that's what we try to accomplish here at Calvary Chapel and most of the other Calvaries that you would attend. 
There in Acts 20, verse 27, Paul says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. You see, if you listen to a preacher for 10 to 15 minutes, sooner or later you will know what their agenda is. If it's about faith and prosperity, that's what you're going to hear. If it's about healing constantly, that's what you're going to hear. You'll, you turn on the TVs late at night, and I see these guys, and Mary's asleep, and I'm over there yelling at television. <laughs> Buy your miracle oil. Send me five bucks. And then I flip the channel, the other guys with the other hand. Buy your miracle water. Send me five bucks. And I go, they get the water, you know, over there at the local well. They get the oil, uh, you know, go to Walgreens or wherever. The same oil you buy. My mom, years ago, I told you, some of you, she bought Jerusalem rocks. We live close in Southern California to Irwindale. It's rock city there. My mom has these, this vial full of rocks. and She says, they're Jerusalem rocks. I go, Mom, what did you pay? She says, $10. It was only $10. I go, Mom, they probably went over to Irwindale and chopped up a bunch of big rocks into little rocks. But see, they fall prey. Listen to the elderly. They fall prey to the shut-ins. And my heart breaks because these people that are fixed income, they send their $5. They send their $10. And it's sad. Now, please, not every televangelist, not every TV and radio preacher, there's some good ones out there. Praise God. But listen to what Paul's going to say now. Now, he says here, I... I have not shunned to give you the full counsel of God. The word shunned in the Greek, I have not held back. I give you the full counsel. You see, the Bible needs to be taught to the church from Genesis to Revelation. That's what we try to do here. Notice verse 15. And so he begins to speak about these that were preaching while Paul was incarcerated. So some indeed preached Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. You had the balance there. There are churches, there are pastors who preach and proclaim the gospel not in truth, but in envy. The word is ill will, in jealousy, in spite, in destruction. And others in strife, the word is contentions, wranglings, variances, debates. Then finally, Paul gives it the other side of the coin. There are others that preach goodwill. And so he says here, uh, with kindness, with purpose, with delight, with satisfaction, they preach truth. They preach truth, the word of God. It's important that we see this. Because there are those that will take advantage of the body of Christ. Now, when we speak about preaching, we speak about doctrine, we speak about theology. When you go to Bible college, you go to seminary training, uh, there's two words that are very important. When you come to homiletics, which is, you know, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the first word is uh, eisegesis. And eisegesis is the interpretation of the text from the Bible, and you force it to say what it says, what you want it to say. You see, the faith and prosperity doctrine, the faith preacher, the prosperity preacher, that's all he's going to preach about. The healing preacher, that's all he's going to speak about. And they will not move from that position. 
And so that's called eisegesis. Now, exegesis is the second word. To interpret the text from the Bible to express the truth of Holy Scripture, what the Bible has to say. And there's times when I'll come across a passage, and I'll tell you, I don't know exactly what it says. And there's times I know I've interpreted, and I'm wrong. I'll catch it later. But when you deliberately are doing it, when you're deliberately trying to confuse people, you're an heir. You're going to have to answer to God for that. Again, I have not shunned to declare uh, unto you the whole gospel or the whole counsel of Christ. That's what he said uh, in Acts chapter 20, verse 27. Now, he's not through yet. Look at verse 16. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not, in sincere, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction uh, to my chains, some do preach Christ through selfish ambition, personal gain. What can I get out of this? You see, there are charlatans out there. They see what a big ministry can bring in big bucks. They see a big ministry can go on the radio and then solicit more money. They see a big ministry, they can go on television and solicit more money. I remember watching a, a preacher on TV years ago, and they were going to take up the offering. And he tells his wife, Let's bring the, the baskets, and I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to lay hands on them. Well, they brought out, you've seen the Kentucky Colonel type of basket. They brought it out. And he says, no, 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 no. That is too small. Where's your faith? Bring me out some big baskets. And I don't know if this was pre-planned, but they brought out two 30-gallon trash cans. Now, he says, now that's the kind of faith I like. And he pushed the baskets out there, and he says, I don't want them back until they're full. And I was just like, put trash in there. Fill it up with trash. You know, but this is the mentality of some of these guys. And so Paul is speaking about selfish ambition. You know, personal gain. Not in honesty, not in truth. Preaching through this selfish ambition. And Paul says... Uh, <laughs> The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they add affliction to my chains. Like, this was going to destroy Paul. I believe this caused Paul that much more to pray. You see, trials, Paul understood that. It was part of his life. It's part of our life. I was thinking of our brother Job on your own study, chapters 1 and 2 on Job. The man was righteous before God. In fact, Satan had to go ask for permission to test him, to bring trials his way. And God allowed it, church. You see, the faith and prosperity preachers don't like that. We're told that Job's life, when Satan touched him, he lost it all. He lost his children. He lost his servants. He lost his animals. He lost his crops. And his wife said, look at you, Job. Remember he was sitting in a heap of ashes with actually boils the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. The best he could do, and he had a piece of pottery, and he was scratching himself. He says, curse the God that you serve. Remember Job's response? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so Paul understood this, that they would add affliction to me? No. 
Look at verse 17. But the latter, he says, out of love they preached. I like that. Knowing that I am appointed to the defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Others don't have good motives, but some do have good motives. They preach about Christ. They know, Paul says, that I have been appointed, that I'm called. I'm called to defend. He uses the word apologia, to give an answer to every man of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To those that are perishing. Paul wanted to bring forth the gospel. You see, church, this morning, if you're a Christian, you're called to bring forth the gospel. You have a responsibility. I can't visit your neighbors. I can't visit your workplace. I can't visit those that you go to school with. If you're a Christian, you have the opportunity. Pray for them and watch God open doors. He comes to the conclusion. Look at verse 18. What then? He's asking a question. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, I like this, Christ is preached. And in this, Paul says, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Whether or not, this is what Paul's saying, the motives are good or bad, pure or unpure, the message of the gospel will still go forth. You see, again, I'm reminded, Isaiah says, the word will not come back void, empty. Even though they would put things into the gospel, Paul says, it's still going to reach those that have a heart to hear. How did you hear the gospel? The gospel came to you, and it spoke to your heart. The Holy Spirit pricked your heart. And so the message is there. I think of the, the little guy that's out there in the bush country, living in a hut. He's got his loincloth on and his spirit aside. They are still out there today. He doesn't know how to read. He doesn't know how to write. Nobody's proclaimed the gospel to him. But according to Psalm 14, the heavens declare uh, the glory of God. And so he goes outside of his hut and he says, hey, it's a God thing. Got a river right here, fish. I got some animals over here in the back. I get to hunt. I got shade. I got moon. I got stars. I, I got the sun. This is God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, Paul was victorious over suffering. I'm going to go through two passages real quick because we want to conclude. If you want to go there with me quickly, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Paul taught only one gospel. You see, there were others out there speaking about pretense. There were others out there speaking about you know, Gnosticism, speaking about uh, Judaizers. Paul knew this. And I like what he says here in Galatians 1. Look at verse 6. I marvel, the word marvel there, I'm astonished, I'm amazed. I marvel that you are uh, turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel. When you get to Galatians chapter 3, oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has charmed you? 
so quickly to take you away from the true gospel. It was happening then, it's happening today. Look at verse 7, which is not another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if we, listen to what he says, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, that we, what, what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The Greek word is very strong here. Let him be anathema. An anathema basically says, let them be cursed to the lowest hell. That's how strong Paul felt against these that came and perverted the gospel. Look at verse 9. He says it again. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Again, twice now. Let him be anathema. Uh, let him be cursed to the lowest hell. He concludes it in verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be the bondservant. Remember the word bondservant? A slave by choice. And Paul understood being a bondservant to the world. He was a bondservant uh, to Judaism. He was a bondservant to Phariseeism. He was a bondservant uh, to the Sanhedrin. And now he chose to be a bondservant of Christ. Real quick, 2 Corinthians now, chapter 11, just go ahead. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And again, at the conclusion, Paul warns, there's another gospel out there. There's another Jesus out there. There's another spirit out there. I'm amazed because in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, not all that say, Lord, Lord, are going to enter the kingdom of God. Look at, as he begins here, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you uh, to one husband that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. This is Paul's heart for the church at Corinth. Then he says in verse 3, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted for the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul's saying, listen, this goes way back. This goes back to Genesis 3. Satan was at work then, he's at work here at the Corinthian church, and then he's still at work today, 2007. Look at the conclusion now, verse 4. For if he who comes preaching another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. You're going to listen to it, but you better take discernment. Church, you have to understand this as at that time. You had Judaizers, you have Gnostics. Look what's come about since then. Here we are, uh, 21st century. There are those that still pollute the gospel. Like it or not, that same spirit is not necessarily the spirit that you're accustomed to. That same Jesus could be somebody else. There's this guy from Cuba. He's running all over South America. That he is Jesus. His first name is Jesus. But he's claiming to be Messiah. And what's appalling is people go see him. Madison Square Garden, it was packed out. I says, how can people be so stupid? And they're flocking. 
Hey, the Dalai Lama, let's put him on television. It's amazing what people follow. Another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit. Make sure it's the one that you know that's in Scripture. Let's all stand, and we'll end with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love, and your mercy, Lord. We pray, Lord, as we studied this morning, victory over suffering. Imagine the suffering Paul went through when he knew that they were preaching in pretense. When he knew they were taking advantage because he was in prison. And yet Paul was assured that the gospel was going to go forth no matter what. Father, teach us this morning. Lord, that even through our hardships, our pains, through our suffering, that you are glorified, Lord. Father, this morning, I pray that each one of us know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we are Christian. Father, I thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love, and your mercy. I thank you for these beautiful saints here this morning, that you have sanctified them, set them apart for your glory, for your kingdom. Father, teach us the principles of suffering, of going through trials and hardships and pains, physical, emotional, Lord, teach us. Teach us to look upon you, not upon man. Not upon a movement, not upon a denomination or non-denomination. But let us look upon you, Lord. The author and the finisher of faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.